Welcome to The Big Rich Show. This podcast will focus on conversations with friends and acquaintances within the four-wheel drive industry. Many of the people that I will be interviewing, you may know the name, you may know some of the history, but let's get in depth with these people and find out what truly makes them a four-wheel drive enthusiast. So now's the time to sit back, grab a cold one, and enjoy our conversation. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two, Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Why should you read Four Low Magazine? Because Four Low Magazine is about your lifestyle, the four-wheel drive adventure lifestyle that we all enjoy. Rock crawling, trail riding, event coverage, vehicle builds, and do-it-yourself tech all in a beautifully presented package. You won't find Four Low on the newsstand rack, so subscribe today and have it delivered to you. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Alan Woodson. Alan is Axis Fab out of Virginia, I believe. And we are going to talk to Alan about his days of uh, rock crawling. He's one of the OGs. And uh, his his fabrication skills and everything that he's doing. So, Alan, thank you very much for coming on board and, and uh, discussing your life with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. So let's jump right in. And uh, where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Charlottesville, Virginia. Is how close is that to where you're at now? Right now, I'm about 45 minutes from that, um, kind of south southeast. Okay. In a in an area called Columbia, Virginia. And you're in a kind of rural setting setting now, aren't you? Yes, sir. I moved. Uh, kind of moved my business and my personal space into one on a on a on a, on a large farm. Well, I shouldn't say large farm. Large enough for me and my daughter. Perfect. And teaching her the good life? Yeah, I think she's teaching me. Really? That's awesome. <laughs> Excellent. So let's go to those early years. Um, was the that Charlottesville, that sounds like it's a little less rural? Yeah, Charlottesville's a, I guess you, you know, it's smaller, uh, more quaint than Richmond, Virginia, being the capital, but it's a mostly dominated by University of Virginia. Okay. The college, you know. So that's uh that's that's probably got some pretty good population to it then because most colleges like that or universities are going to be in the neighborhood of 40,000 people or so. Yeah, I would say it's much yeah, it's a, it's a it's a big little city. Big little city. There you go. And what was it like growing up there? Uh, I think it was very family oriented for me. I have a lot of cousins and brothers and sisters. It was, you know, very family oriented for me. So my family all around me growing up. So we uh, got in trouble together and experienced a lot of stuff together as a family. Uh, so I would say uh, that would be the emphasis is family. That's what it was like having a lot of family around. That's that's always good. So the you said uh, getting in trouble. I'm assuming you mean more like finding things to get into. 
Well, it was a big little city, so it was rural on the outskirts of it. So we would explore a lot and find ourselves uh, doing some pretty interesting things, both, uh, you know, off-roading where you shouldn't be and that sort of thing. <laughs> so when you were growing up, what did you start with, uh, like Tonka trucks, uh, bicycles? Um, did you get into ATVs early or motorcycles? Oh, man. All of the above. I actually just having this conversation the other day with somebody like, where do you, where do you, where does this come from? You know, how do you, how do you grow a love for what it is that you do? Like, well, you know, I never thought of it that way. But, uh, funny enough, my mom used to keep scrapbooks of, uh, of our childhood. Each one of my, my siblings have it, have one. And, you know, it's funny, you look back from like the second grade, third grade, fourth grade of, monster trucks you know just drawing monster trucks everything you could figure out with monster trucks was the thing back then so and then uh fast forward to you know i was old enough to get a paper route and start saving some money and you know buying the you know bicycles and stuff that you could off-road with and then advancing into motorcycles and atvs and of course i couldn't leave them alone i started figuring out i wanted them to modify be modified a certain way and whether it worked out or not, I started learning a lot of stuff. That's kind of where it started from there. And eventually, uh, you know, you become the age of driving and uh probably wasn't interested in a vehicle unless it had four-wheel drive. Kind of went from there. Right. And you, Virginia gets snow, correct? Yeah, it definitely. I mean, I, it seems like it snowed a lot more when I was younger. At least, at least it seemed like the cycle was we'd get two or three big snows a year. And for us, I'm big snow might be two feet to three feet of snow. Um, every couple of years. But yeah, we definitely get snow. I was not like out, you know, in the Northeast, but. Right. So then you're saying bicycles. Um, was there, was it like a BMX type bicycle? I'm, I'm, I know you're younger yeah, than me. Yeah. So BMXs were available. That's right. BMX bikes. Uh, um, let's see. What else? Uh, skateboards. We did a lot of skateboarding when I was younger. Of course, there was no skateboard park zero around us. So that's the other thing we got in trouble with, with skateboarding places you shouldn't be. Um, <laughs> Parking lots and, uh, and uh, entryways to stores. <laughs> you name it. If it was doable or looked uh, sketchy, we was on it. That's awesome. So what was the, uh, do you remember the first motorcycle? Yes. Um, actually, my first motorcycle was a, an XR80. Um, I kind of borrowed it from my cousin that lived about a mile and a half, two miles away, and uh, never returned it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I got in uh, quite a bit of trouble with that again, riding at places you shouldn't be in the inner city, then out in the parks and stuff when nobody's looking. So but it was that, that was my first. In in trouble because you were not licensed. Well, you know, it's an XR80. It's an off road bike. You know, yeah, and, and you know, it's not like out west or some of the places I've I've experienced since where uh, dirt bikes and the off roading is more uh, a part of life. And, and you know, everybody's got access trails or something in their backyard. Right. You now here on the east, and especially in Charlottesville, there's little to nothing to do unless you go out into the county which uh, for me when i was growing up wasn't a wasn't really much of a resource to do that so i found my way 
uh, finding trails uh, in the uh, outskirts of the city, you might say. Did you stay off golf courses? No, they were all fair game, <laughs> golf courses. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that, that, makes the, <laughs> that makes yeah. a little more sense then. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what kind of tinkering did you do? Well, for when I'm in dirt bikes, you know, basically it was suspension learning about, uh, you know, just trial and error, figuring out how to make them uh, work better for me, limited experience. It was, I spent more time apart uh, than together. Once I figured it out, usually I uh, made, the, made them go faster and get better traction. I don't know. Come to think of it, I think, you know, we're always tinkering with exhaust and carburetors, trying to get more horsepower out of, out of them and doing that sort of thing. Um, it was, uh, the two strokes. When I got into the two strokes, of course, my first few were four strokes. Two strokes were a lot of fun. Uh, figuring out how to get those tuned. And, uh, then, you know, I kind of just stayed, once I got a little older and I was able to, get uh out and about we we did find ourselves trail riding a whole lot i don't know if you've ever heard of the george washington national park out here we right take uh, our dirt bikes up there atvs up there and spend almost the whole weekend uh exploring trails and having a lot of fun up there and who did you do that with oh man that's a good question so when i was younger uh i had a friend that i went to school with uh, his name was roger know him and i would go explore a bit and then uh as i got older some of my friends that are still friends today it's like scott jones um, carl shortridge um i don't know if you know that guy or not <laughs> a wild nut, yep <laughs> <laughs> um kenny thacker uh just a whole bunch of friends that i had you know in my mid to late teens kind of all still friends now and kind of all advanced together into the off-road world Related to four wheel drive stuff. So, if you guys were were friends at that age, I'm assuming that you went to school together. Um, no, as a matter of fact, um, just one or two of my friends that I went to school with, um, you know, were were included in that group. I, I got started young. I had a full time job from 16. Um, I guess I might say about 15 and a half, 16 years old. I had a full time job, so. And, uh, so most of my friends were two, three, four years older than me. Okay. And, uh, that's kind of how that. So you're saying Carl's an old man? Oh, he's a bit older than me. Yeah. I wouldn't call him an old man, (laughs) but if he's not, if he's not listening, yeah, he's a little bit, he's starting to look like an old man. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, Scott Jones, I've met him because he had one of your buggies and, or was spotting for you, correct? Yeah, Scott spotted for me a couple times. He goes all the way back. You know, it's funny. Scott bailed us out. You know, our whole group kind of went with me the first time I went and did my very first rock crawl up at uh, competitive rock crawl at Paragon. Um, remember that park up there that oh, yeah. Kyle had? Yeah, went up there for the very first car that I built to get into the unlimited class. I, the day before, I was com- practicing on the comp course and just wasn't wearing my seatbelt correct and new car blues and ended up rolling the car and knocking myself out and breaking three ribs because I wasn't wearing my seatbelt correctly or the harness correctly. And Scott and, uh, and, uh, 
and let's see, do you remember Mark Smith too, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Mark Smith, man, well, Mark Smith was my spider. I'm on the phone here, but yeah, his dogs are getting excited. <laughs> no worries. This is why I edit everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Mark, uh, Mark Smith and, and Scott, who just came to spectate, Scott got in uh, as a spotter and drove the car because I was in so much pain from the broken ribs. I actually had one of the ribs that you know, it broke and then overlapped itself. You know how they kind of pushed down out. Oh, damn. Yeah, it was rough. And so uh, they had fun uh, working working with the car. And, of course, Paragon's got some really awesome terrain up there. So, yeah, then... Uh, and you built we that car. You built that car from scratch. I did. Yeah, I sure did. I built that car. Actually, that first car that I put together, I bought a bare chassis from. Um, oh man, what was his name? Grady. I can't remember. Grady Off Road Out West. Oh, Grady. Okay, yeah. So I bought that car from him, uh, or should I say, a bare chassis? Okay. And then I built it. Built it out myself and. Um, not that he builds an inferior product or anything, but I found a lot of things that weren't useful to me and figured out, you know, I need to learn how to build these things myself. That's awesome. And, uh, yeah. So let's, let's backtrack. I got you going too soon. Um, we'll get back to that chassis. What was the, you said you were working full time. What kind of job were you working? Uh, let's see. When I, when I left school, and started my first full-time job. I think uh, I was doing construction. Uh, I was a laborer on a construction. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to remember the name of the contractor, but it was a contractor, a local contractor hired me to do uh, basic laborer stuff. And I did that for about a year. Um, and then from there I went to, uh, let's see. Actually I went from there to a, um, a local like lumber yard building supply company. And uh, started there doing like yard work where you uh, load trucks for the day and, you know, to carry lumber out to job sites. And, and uh, funny enough, uh, one day I didn't have a driver's license right out of school. So they, uh, one guy came up to me and asked me to get in a truck, one of the big, big trucks. You know, I guess we call them boom trucks, the ones that pick the um, lumber up and set them on site up right. on roofs and stuff. And I was like, uh. I didn't dare tell them I don't have a driver's license. I didn't want to get fired or whatever. So I ended up taking the truck that day and doing this thing. And then it just kind of turned into, well, you did it yesterday, so you're doing it today. And uh, I wasn't able to keep that job much longer because that, that didn't work out. I should have just told them the truth to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were working for the contractor, I'm assuming you're building houses and stuff like that? Yeah, you know, I was... Uh, Building, well, I should say I was a part of the process of building. Right. We were doing, um, I guess, more or less what I, what I was, my duties were, you know, keeping the job site organized, picking up material, um, and... Uh, Gophering? Yeah, that's it. That's exactly what it is. Basic laborer is what I call it, yeah. or what it was called. And, uh, and then, you know, towards the end of working at that, I was doing uh, light framing and and learning how to, I guess the best way to say, I wasn't, I wasn't a framer or anything. I was just more filling in for help with different people as they needed it, the different crews. 
And so I got to do everything from framing to putting roofs on, to putting siding on, you know, just basic all of it. I was working for the contractor, so I wasn't working for the subcontractor. Okay. Um, so I, I just did whatever the guy who ran the job uh, wanted to do. Uh, so anything that came in, he wanted to speed it up, and me and a few other guys were the ones that were on site making sure that those things would happen at a rapid pace. So out in that area, did the uh, the guys pounding the nails, they'd send you for something they needed. Did they ever mess with you guys? Oh, man. It seemed like a, a daily hazing, yeah. Because I can remember as a contractor, I was on site one day, and I I was out there for talking to my foreman for probably an, an hour. And I said, so what's the new kid doing? He's rumming around in the trailer, you know, the stock trailer. And he goes, oh, he's looking for a box of toenails. And I went, Jesus Christ. You know, that's that's my money here. he's making for digging around in the trailer. Get him out of there. <laughs> it's like. Well, um, I, re- I definitely remember a lot of that going on, especially like some of the outhouse shenanigans. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so. I don't recall some of the things they were done, but I'm certain that as the other new guys behind me came through, uh, I'm certainly passed the uh, torch to them as well. Yeah, it was board stretchers and uh, toenails. <laughs> yeah, sky hooks and board stretchers. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so then you're working at the lumber yard. Um, you're driving the, the boom truck for deliveries. They Did you tell them or did they find out you didn't have a driver's license? So, you know, I, I don't know. I probably end up doing that for like six months. That's not off bad. And on. Yeah, you know, it's, it's bad, really. You know, you don't have a driver's license. You're driving these, you know, CDL trucks. And uh, anyway, so the owner of the company came down to see me one day. My main duty was I was uh, supposed to keep track of managing the yard, who comes in and out of it and verifying, you know, the they're, what they're picking up is on it. I forget what they call it. Maybe it's called a gate guard or something like that. So that's what I did in the meantime and then just filled in otherwise when I needed. So the owner of the company come down and said, hey, you know, we don't have a copy of your driving record on file. Maybe um, maybe we should have that. I need that for insurance stuff and, you know, whatever. I said, yeah, no problem. I'll go get that for you. And um, a couple of days goes by. Of course, I can't do it. I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to be in trouble. And uh, I didn't get fired from there. I kind of just gracefully said, uh, I'm going to go ahead and just put my two weeks notice in. And then I didn't show up the next day type thing. And got lucky. I had a a guy that had been talking to me about getting into uh, electrical work or helping me with uh, the electrical business. So I went right from that job right to the next. So it all seems like it was meant to be. So or at least supposed to flow this way. Uh, That's when I started doing electrical and learning some trades. Did you, that was a call. Did, when did you get your driver's license finally? You know, I think I didn't get my driver's license until I was 18. That's funny. Hmm. I've owned like, up until that point, I probably owned 10 cars, vehicles, and I'm kind of ashamed of it now thinking about saying it out loud, but I drove several years with no driver's license. Uh, well, full disclosure, I did something to deserve the ability not to have my uh-huh. privileges. Okay. <laughs> Understood. We won't get into that. <laughs> bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? No. <laughs> it, was an, it, was, it was an innocent mistake. Okay. Nothing, nothing funny. I'll tell it. I'll tell you about it. It's kind of. It is kind of funny. Okay. So, I, one of my cousins and I, um, 
while my parents are out of town, thought it was a great idea to um, to hang out all day and um, um, do things that kids do when they're unsupervised, you know, experiment with alcohol and stuff. <laughs> and then we got uh, kind of distracted and and uh, forgot that we were we had responsibilities. We were supposed to take some keys and drop them off at a um, well, his place of work and. That evening, you know, things should be normal, but we're still making bad decisions. We jump on one of those, uh, one of the mopeds, and we were going down a one-way street the wrong way, speeding while doubled up on one of those, and uh, we got uh, we got in trouble. And uh, that led me to having to explain that to my dad. Uh, that was a pretty colorful moment, and of course, I got a summons to court, and the judge thought uh, thought it'd be best if uh, somebody with uh, with that uh, colorful of a of a what would you call that infractions from that event, they, maybe they shouldn't have their driver's license for a while. <laughs> well, that kind of sucks for driving a moped moped backwards. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, they said I was driving down one way street, the wrong way, speeding, doubled up. You're only supposed to have one vehicle or one person on the vehicle. Oh, and I was technically underage. I wasn't of driving age for one of those on the streets. Ah, okay. But you didn't get you didn't get deuced. No, no okay. I just got tagged, so I couldn't get my license. So I was eighteen. Well, that's that's not too bad. Nah, not really. Just doing kid stuff and making silly decisions. Wasn't like you were the getaway driver in an armed robbery or something. No, that came much later. <laughs> that later on. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was the first car you had? Oh man, first car I had was a Honda CRX. Really? Okay. I hated it. Did you uh, push it beyond its capabilities? Um, no, I drove it for a few weeks and decided it was gross, and uh, I needed a four-wheel drive. <laughs> <laughs> Ended up buying my first Jeep. Uh, I bought a CJ7 from uh, from uh, Carl Shortridge, actually. Oh, all right. Yeah, my CJ7 was my first four-wheel drive, and and I uh, drove it to work just about every day. Again, unfortunately, I guess we already covered that. But, yeah. yeah. So, how long did you have that? Is it something that you wish you had now? That CJ7 was a huge piece of junk, and um, I'm probably going to hurt his feelings because it was real sentimental to him. But I spent more time working on it than it ran. Um, again, I drove it every day, but I was always working on it. Um, it's just one of those Jeep projects. If you ever come across one, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. They, uh, yeah, they just, they don't, they don't move until you rub on them for 15, 20 minutes every day. Um, and you're buying at least a couple hundred dollars worth of parts every few weeks. Um, isn't that that every Jeep project anymore? (laughs) You know, I got lucky. I did come across a few Jeeps that were a lot more reliable than that, but that first one, maybe a, Maybe it's because I was young and money was hard to come by that it felt so painful. But that particular one, um, I remember being a huge headache. But then the, the few after that had good uh, good relationship with. Excellent. And uh, did you ever get into uh, into the full size, like square box Chevys or anything? Oh, man, did I? Um, so I would say by the time I was 18... I had, or I should say when I was 18 or so, I ended up buying my first square body. I had an 87, um, what do they call it? A custom deluxe, which meant what? No AC, no radio, uh, just a 
eight foot bed, two door truck. Vinyl and plastic. That's it, man. I drove. Oh, it was an, a man. It's a manual four speed with the with the uh, with that granny gear. I call it the low first gear. And uh, I, I man, I love that truck. It had a it had a three oh five in it when I bought it, which you know has no power, no gut. Right. And uh, I drove it for you know. I don't know. I'd just be guessing forty, fifty thousand miles like that until it was just wore out, and it was already high mileage when I bought it. But I built a my first engine uh, in my kitchen. Uh, my first house I bought. Okay. I bought my first house at eighteen. <laughs> so your, yeah, so your parents I, allowed that? <laughs> no, no. I bought my first house when I was seventeen, eighteen years old, and, and uh, my shed was too damp. And so when I got my engine blocked back from the machine shop, it was starting to flash rust so i said no i can't do that so i put it on the kitchen table and built my first small block 350 and put it in in that truck and um that's when i started learning about gear ratios it was forced upon me um i put an engine in there that should have been creating about four or five hundred horsepower and it it had even less well i shouldn't say even less it was barely a marginal bump and noticeable gains over the 305 and i just couldn't figure it out why it was like that. And and then I often talk to people that said, well, you know, what are you getting for fuel mileage with your truck? And, uh, you know, that truck with the 305 was amazing. It would average 20, maybe 22 miles a gallon, which is unheard of with right. a truck with 35 on it. And uh, uh, we checked the gear ratio. A, uh, a friend referenced, hey, man, maybe the gear ratio is something you should look at. And I had never, ever seen one before or since. Uh, that thing had a 273 ring gear in it. 273, and, uh, wow. Can you imagine that? <laughs> well, yeah. So somebody, I don't know how that happened, but the truck was all original other than what I did to it. And so we swapped the gears out in it and, uh, well, big difference. That's when I learned the value of gear ratio of understanding that. So what better. gears did you go to? Do you remember? Surprisingly, yeah. Looking back now, it, you know, it wasn't, uh, wasn't huge. We went with uh, uh, four tens, okay, which was pretty run of the mill stuff for Chevy stuff back then, right? Uh, four ten, four eleven, whatever, and that made a big difference. And what size um, tires were you running? I think by the time I sold that truck, um, we had thirty eights on it. But when I was doing the gear swap, we had thirty fives on it. Okay, we just loved to burn tires up as i drove it to work every day and you know you got these super swampers on there and you're burning them up like uh, and you're smiling about it you know young and dumb expensive <laughs> tires so you're uh you're a typical east coaster running intercos that's uh, right those huge tires the poor. 35s <laughs> i was poor too so they're uh bias plies. <laughs> bias plies so they were they were square blocks of uh rubber in the winter yeah, any kind of rust in the road, you better be uh, ready to yank that through on the left and right as fast as you can. <laughs> so what kind of modifications did you do that to that 87? Oh, Besides man, the gears? That, that, poor, that poor girl got everything you could imagine. Um, I think by the time I was done lifting that truck, it had, you know, which was big for me. I know a lot of other people, keep in mind, I'm driving to work every day. I think it had eight inches of lift. Um of course, we had headers going back to Flowmasters and pretty much minimal exhaust from there. Pretty loud and obnoxious. Um, of course, I told you I built the motor to put in there. Um, high performance 
performance clutch because I never drove it like a sensible person would. <laughs> um, um, I couldn't tell you how many sets of tires I went through on it. It was quite a few. Swapped uh, wheels on it like, you know, some, like people swap their shoes. Right. Just always have a different look. Yeah, I really did a lot. I always, always, uh, that truck was uh, fire engine red, just real bright red. Never really was uh, in love with it, but I kind of missed that. That's one of my top, top favorite trucks, that particular first square body I had. I can understand that. I had an 86 Chevy one-ton short bed, four-speed, mm-hmm. that I just absolutely love that truck. It probably yeah, helped yeah, that yeah. it had 49er colors. It was red and gold. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. then uh, what uh, when, you were, when you were in school, you said you, you got out like at 16 or so. Um, yeah. You didn't play sports or then then you were probably doing your own thing. Yeah, I was I was playing sports. Okay, um, I was you know, football was the only thing I was into. Um, kind of went through that phase. Uh, kind of short. I, I didn't get to play football a whole lot before I was moved on, but I did football. I was actually doing really well in school. I was doing uh, state on honor roll most of the time. Nice. Uh, stayed pretty busy. And you just made that decision it was time to, to go to work? No. Um, I think I mentioned I got in some trouble. Oh. And, uh, yeah. Okay. Got in some trouble with uh, some school things. And uh, I don't remember how one thing led to the, the other, but uh, they felt I was a little too mature for school. I should move on. So um, I did that. I took their advice and got my uh my diploma and moved moved on and started my life. Okay. Fair enough. So then you're uh you're working at the lumber yard and then an electrician. How long were you uh working as uh for the electrician? Uh that's that was the start of a pretty long career. Um I definitely learned a lot from that first guy. He was a good friend and um and I learned the company that I worked for was a small company. They did electrical work, heating and air. Um, but, and I learned how to install heating and cooling equipment at, at just a helper level, if you will, from there. But uh, enough to see that I was interested in it. So moved on to a few other places I worked where I learned more. And I ended up going back to trade school um, and got my... Um, I guess, what do they call it? Apprenticeship program all the way to the masters and, and electrical heating and air, uh, mechanical plumbing. And, um, gosh, I ended up working in, in that field or career for 25 years. Wow. Or 20 years. Yeah. You know, or somewhere between 20, 25 years. Um, and, and I wouldn't say I always did that. Um, in the early years of electrical work, that, that was probably a four or five year process learning everything I wanted to learn about um, a career in that. And I didn't really choose it. It chose me. So um, I just tend to try to excel at whatever is in front of me. And so um, in that process, I one of my favorite jobs I had was uh, sign work. I actually did electrical maintenance and repair and, and installs. And then it moved to manufacturing, which is where I learned a little little bit about fabricating 
is uh, we used to build signs and install them, travel around all around the uh, Virginia area, um, working on high-rise signs, storefront signs, neon signs, fluorescent signs, and that was probably one of them. So a lot of sheet metal. Yeah, a lot of sheet metal work, framework, TIG welding, MIG welding, aluminum. Um, running, we ran a CNC uh, machine, cut our own. Um, I guess we call them letter backings. You know the traditional signs you see on a storefront when they're individual neon signs. We would make each letter, hand form them, fit them, um, have the neon glass made, fit them with that transformers. It was real fun. I enjoyed that. Uh, that company ran into some trouble and. Um, and I moved on. Actually, ended up doing something real short that was interesting. Was uh, well drilling. I ended up doing uh, working for a EPA contractor well drilling company. They do monitoring wells for groundwater at different places. The most popular one was gas stations monitoring uh, gas leaks. That's when I learned. Uh, learned a lot of sketchy stuff goes on at gas stations and <laughs> how much they're allowed to leak before they're a problem. Um, yeah, I did that for about, uh, I'll just say a short term. And, and we also drilled well water, uh, you know, for residential commercial, you know, drinking water. Um, what else did I do after that? That, that? that was a, that was probably the most horrible job. I learned a lot, but it was just a terrible job. Was that but, why well, was that? Was it because of the the style of work, or just something you really weren't that interested in? Well, I definitely wasn't interested in it. But I, anything mechanical with engines or you know welding, you know, I was also you know keeping the equipment running and stuff. So um, you know, just in general, you know, oil oil rigs, well, any kind of well drilling period is pretty rough work, and you gotta. It's pretty intense. You know, you usually don't work at a slow pace. It's you're you're wide open and drilling four or five hundred foot is nothing like drilling the thousands of feet they do with oil rigs, but it's still similar process, so it's pretty labor intensive and and uh I don't mind mind it, but you know, it's it's just it was just hard work, dirty work and uh wasn't my thing. Right. What what came after the well drilling? I went back into that electrical and heating and air career ended up, I didn't leave, that's when I didn't leave it no more for a long time and advanced pretty far. Um, somewhere in there, I, I started, uh, uh, went to work for a company where I was supervising and running, you know, 10, 11 crews and, you know, d- divided up into HVAC, electrical, uh, what else did we, oh, um, we did plumbing and, and mechanical stuff as well for commercial, mostly residential. Um, that was a fun job. I, I had a, that was a family-owned business. We have a good relationship with them. But ultimately, you know, in the meantime, I was also doing this off-road stuff behind the scenes and working full-time during the week. You know, you know, was for me, I was averaging 40 to 60 hours a week there. Um, and then also, when uh, when I wasn't doing that, I was working in my own shop at home, building these off-road cars and figuring things out and competing, you know, everything was kind of, uh, going on all at once. And at that point, were you calling it Axis Fab? You know, it's funny. I didn't call it anything for the longest time. Um, I was just doing what I needed to do to keep competitive and, and advance 
to get to the next hardest obstacle and ultimately competing, you know, which I guess you have experience with. That's when I met you is, you know, we went straight in to the unlimited class and was running, um, you know, as, as competitive as we could. So I think then I was just, it was just, it was no name. It was just me. And some of my friends would have me do mods for them and some other people along the way, build things for them. Uh, I don't think I turned it into access fabrication until, gosh, it was probably the 2000, somewhere in 2008 or 2010 that I start, you know, the access fabrication and um, built a few cars. We built John Bourne a car, the Race Ultra 4. Um, that's that's about the time it started getting uh, into branding territory. They were trying to brand everything. Right. The times that you guys spent younger with Carl and Scott and some of the others were uh, obviously four-wheeling at that point as well. That's uh, was your like interest? Um, it seemed like that was the uh, number one connection between us besides, you know, you got Scott Jones and Carl Shortridge and our, you know, Kenny, Kenny Thacker and, man, the list is all, man, it just, we all just kind of always found ourselves in four-wheel drives doing four-wheel drive stuff or, or hanging out as a family group. Uh, we were close, much like family would be, and eating dinner together, going out all the time. And, you know, it was a pretty tight relationship growing up. Do you remember the the date of the or the approximate year of that um, New Rock event with uh, up at Paragon? Um, I would say that was what two thousand two three maybe. Yeah, I think their first event was two thousand three. Yeah, so that that was we got started towards the end. So I would say end of a year it was fall when we when we finally got that new new car, first car, if you will, uh, ready to go. Um, so maybe, maybe it's end of 03. Okay. And, uh, at that time, that's when Charlie was kind of like the big dog. Is that correct? Who? <laughs> who are you talking about? Charlie. <laughs> I don't, I don't even know who you're talking about. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> from competing at Paragon, and uh, having that Grady chassis, where did you? Uh, where else did you compete at? Or you know, did you wait, go down? Wait Rock a and, minute. What? I think you're talking about that short New Yorker. <laughs> well, I think I know who you're talking about now. The guy yeah. that, that that can't stop talking. Yeah, yeah. Basically, you say hi, and he gets dehydrated talking to you. <laughs> yeah. You only oh, get man. to talk when he passes out from dehydration. <laughs> Let me let me tell you about how I met Charlie. Would you like okay. to hear about that? Absolutely. So you remember up at Paragon, uh, what was that? The uh, you had to go down a couple of exits to get to some hotels. And my first uh, my first time going up there, I, just, I had an '87 Toyota 4Runner with ball grooves on it, and otherwise fairly is solid axle swapped, and uh, you know the run of the mill Toyota 4Runner, and. Uh, I was in the parking lot six o'clock in the morning, getting ready to head over to Paragon, and discovered my co- my truck was leaking oil. It was about the had a Cummins. What year was that truck? I don't know, ninety nine Cummins. That's what it was. And 
you know, it was a, it was my baby, you know, back then diesel trucks, well, still are extremely expensive. Something's wrong. You get scared, right? Yep. And so I'm in the parking lot looking at this oil drip on, on the, on the ground. It's about the size of a, I don't know, about the size of a melon in diameter. And that's a lot of oil to me. I'm scared, right? And, uh, he comes over, walking across the parking lot, sees me on the ground. What you doing? I said, man, there's oil leaking out of my truck. I'm trying to figure out it's coming from. And it's like, he notices I got the off-road truck on the trailer. And he's like, well, where are you going? I said, man, we're going to this park called uh, Paragon. Never been there before or whatever. And so uh, <clears throat> he's looking at the oil on the ground. Oh, man, that's not a big deal. Just get the truck started up and head on over and have some fun. Don't worry about trucks with old diesels leak oil. Don't worry about it. So I was like, huh, okay. So he disappears into the darkness. And uh, I just didn't think nothing of it. And later, halfway through that day, I'm over on a trail me and a couple buddies having a good old time with their, you know, dual cases going real slow. And here comes this tube chassis monstrosity thing that I don't know. I think he built it himself or something, but either way, it was pretty cool to me. I've never been around one of those before. And, uh, here, lo and behold, there's the same guy, Charlie. I met in the parking lot and he's like, Hey, um, you want to go wheeling with us down some of these trails? I didn't think that through at the time. Hindsight. <laughs> I realized I became his uh, support truck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we ended up wheeling together the whole weekend. Basically destroyed my forerunner. It was no longer, uh, I think we burned the clutch out of it that evening. and had to put a clutch in the parking lot. Went back for it the next day. Still trying to keep pace with these guys. And these built, you know, tube chassis and stuff. And burnt the clutch out again. Um, and I, I think that was the last time I took that vehicle anywhere. I think I, that's when I realized I needed to be doing some uh I was really attracted to the hardcore stuff. And that's how I met Charlie. Listened to him all day. And, and uh, <laughs> Charlie's actually a really nice guy. Very helpful. Really a good advocate for off-road community, you know, as far as, and I think as I look back, you know, he really, really uh, makes sure everybody's a part of the experience. And as much true. as he talks, you know, he's got that big bravado attitude, whatever you want to call it. He's a, he's a real good guy. Yeah, he was... He was pretty instrumental in the first New Rock event. It was myself and Bob Rogie went out there to help the Kyles put that that event on and kind of show them, right. you know, show them the ropes. And right. the the competitors all thought that we were just trying to make them look foolish, and that we right. had set up courses that were completely undoable, and that we were, you know, and. And we were telling them, no, these are the kind of courses that you'll see out west. In fact, probably not as tough as we do out west. And they were not happy with it. Um, Vic Carroll from Advanced Adapter had talked to somebody that night in the in the uh, restaurant there at that exit that you were talking about, one of the hotels. And a couple of the guys were like, yeah, those guys are just trying to you know destroy our rigs and stuff and Vic told him, no, no, this is, this is what they, you know, this is the, how the courses are set back West too. And so I had a driver's meeting again on Sunday, which I rarely ever do, but I had to, to explain to everybody that, you know, we weren't trying to damage them. We weren't trying to, you know, we're just trying to give them the experience. And, uh, Charlie spoke up and said, you guys need to quit bitching. You know, (laughs) you just need to get out there and wheel. This is, this is stuff that, you know, they do all the time. And uh, everybody got the hang of it after that. The second day was much smoother than the first, but it was it was pretty brutal the first day. 
Yeah, I definitely remember the learning curve, and maybe that's what these guys were experiencing. Was you can go drive these trails all you want to, and you can say that you ran an obstacle a certain way, and you you, you completed it, and you know you're just as good as the next guy behind you, and you know all you know the whole thing. And then, but the moment you set cone, and you have to go a very specific way, or else uh, everything changes, and that's probably what sets a lot of people apart in both the frustrated category and the ones who are really um, rise to the challenge and figure out how to become a better driver you know, saying between those cones. And I don't know, that's kind of my take on it. I, I can see how those guys would get upset and yeah. figure out how to take an easy line around something versus, Oh, Nope. You got to stay right here. Learn how to drive between these cones. Exactly. Yeah. It, it I think that the competitive scene um, really did forward the, the ability of a lot of drivers out there. Um, not only, just the technology and the vehicles themselves, because I mean, look at look at what you guys are all building now, compared to what was being built back then. But also, you know, the being able to look at the terrain and then realize, you know, figuring out a way to get through there, you know, and because uh, I know that a lot of people have told me, you know, when they first come out to an event and they look at the cones, even in areas that they've wheeled before, and they may have competed before, but they look at it and know, like. You know what are you doing? You know you on you on drugs or something? How do you right. when you how'd you come up with that? You know, and it, right. it's a little different, like with out at uh, Roush, you know, where everything is concrete and you have you're pretty limited on what you can. You know that you can't really have anything you haven't done before. You just got to tie them together differently, basically. Well, that's a, that's a really interesting way to point out. You know the difference between man-made courses and natural courses. You know, man-made the concrete. Uh, courses that they have up there are super, you know, I mean, it's great. I think um, someone, and all my experiences there have been great. I like the traction. I like the lap of traction occasionally, the seat inclines and off-camber stuff, but nothing compares to having a comp on natural terrain, especially the East Coast terrain that you might find reminiscent of Paragon and and um, some of the other trails that we had access to up there. The, the Roush Creek, is a, their comp course is awesome. It's really hard to raise raise the bar to what these cars can do until right. you get on some of the natural terrain that we well you know all too well but yeah yeah I agree. While the uh, the concrete courses are typically easier for us to set up and deal with, you know recoveries yep. and all that kind of stuff because you know yep. you you have the access you don't you don't you know you're not picking it's not in an area where you can't get to a car. Um, you know, it's still, I still prefer the natural courses over the, the man-made myself. We try to avoid yeah, the I, the man-made now. Yeah, I definitely have an appreciation for the, the concrete, you know, having lived that evolution. Um, I feel like when I was, you know, still figuring it out, that Roush Creek was instrumental to, you know, just figuring out angles and, you know, really dialing the car in. So I still think that Roush Creek, the comp course and other concrete courses are very, very useful for tuning a car. To, you know, someone who's just built a car and you need, you need to work it out in short order close to the trailer. I love actually going. That's my go-to place for getting those things sorted out. But man, nothing compares to getting out there and on the, you know, the natural rocks and figuring it out, especially new line. We really like breaking new trails too finding some uh, big gnarly stuff to run. Right. And uh, it, it appears that there's more stuff becoming available 
to the guys out east. There's more more private property owners um, that are finally figuring it out that it's that you know they have the property. They might as well have it open. Yeah, it's funny how the difference. You know, being able to experience the West Coast. Um, you know, anything from uh, when I say West Coast, anything uh, west of Tennessee, just a different mentality and off-road in general, you know, it's a way of life. It's more access. There's more, you know, state parks. There's more things that allow off-roading, whereas the denser you get into the East Coast, it just seems like it's frowned upon and and, and restricted heavily. So it's harder on the East Coast, at least in, in, in our close proximity to the places that we run. So No, I agree um, 100%. You know, even I would say... I typically think that once you get out of Colorado and New Mexico, you're yeah. hitting much more restricted areas. Um, really? Yeah. The, the the control that you're finding less less open lands. Um, right. You know, so it's it's people having to build those parks. You know, on the West Coast, we don't. There are you know, if you take the west of the Rockies, everything is. You know, there's open OHV areas that are controlled by Bureau of Land Management, like right. the, what we have up in Rangeley, Colorado, or down at the Hammers, or the state parks in California. Um, you know, there's all sorts of those areas west of the Rockies. And uh, yeah. east of the Rockies, that stuff, you know, definitely disappears. And we're all on private property where, you know, the guy, somebody's talk their friend in, you know, some rancher dude or something like that that says, you know, hey, you got this canyon, you got this set of rocks back here that's no good for running cattle on or doing anything with, let us go wheel it. And then eventually it turns into a park. And that's, you know, that's, uh, it's really fortunate that, that people are, are okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. I would, uh, I remember my first time out to the Hammers. And, uh, actually I went out there the first time with my buddy, Jeff Stoppard. Not sure if you remember him. He's been to a few events with us, but Jeff's a six foot three, 350 pounds, extremely enthusiastic guy. And, uh, we went out to the hammers one time and we're, we were running trails and we're used to like everything, uh, you know, these trees, these trees kind of tell you where the trail are or where the trail exists. And out the hammers, you know, with few people out out there, it, it's hard to know where the good stuff is. But we were like, as soon as you got off the trailer, it's like good stuff here, it's good stuff there, everywhere. So we were running our what we thought was a trail, and those guys come over and say, "Listen, man, there's actually a trail right here that you need to try." <laughs> uh, anyway, that's when we learned about the maps and knowing the area and all these amazing rock trails out there at the hammers. Yeah, I mean, you're talking 180,000 acres or something like that out there. It's uh, yeah. It's easy to get lost out there. I love it. That's a man. I got a top five uh, places in the uh, country that I like to wheel, and the hammers. Uh, hammers is one of my favorite, and uh, I guess my second favorite. Actually, you know what? My first favorite would be Sand Hollow Off Road Park. You know, that that place is pretty awesome. Yes. Hurricane. Yep. Yep. I love I love it there, and then you know all the others, Moab and the hammers and I like, you know, when you had that event at Mason, Texas, I kind of fell in love with that place. I haven't been back for recreational wheeling yet, but that place is pretty awesome. Well, you ought to come at the uh, end of March. I'm, 
I'm going to try. I'm going to try to get back. I'm, I'm still rebuilding and getting things in order, but yeah. I'm really hoping that one day I'll be able to do the theme like I used to. So you're saying that, that your favorite places, it sounded like most of them were West coast. Um, yeah. Is that because yeah. just the vastness, because most of the places that we compete or we, we wheel out here, you know, they're just vast. They're huge. Right. Well, I think there's some, the focus, you know, could be put on that for sure. Uh, I like the, you know, when I was younger, I remember everybody always debating traction of diverse, the difference between East coast and West coast. And <laughs> I always had this, this thing I needed to sort out. Well, let's go see what this traction's like. And lo and behold, it's not as cut and dry as people say it is. It's not ton of traction out West. It's just every terrain's different. And uh, so, man, the, I think I like hurricanes so much because of it's just beautiful out there. And this, you know, the vastness is definitely awesome. The people there are great. And then the hammers also. Yeah. So there, you got some merit there. There's, there's definitely some merit there. I like, I like the East coast and in my top five, I, I think Paragon, um, what, well, what used to be Paragon's pretty awesome place. Um, Roush Creek. Um, and then there's a few places down like in, uh, Kentucky, that's awesome. You got the Wind Rock, right? Um, man, I, my mind just went blank on some of the others. But you remember uh, Teleco? Teleco was a lot of fun. I don't know if you can still get access to that, but um, lots of places you know, we don't have access to anymore. I, I don't remember. I haven't been to Teleco in a while. I think I heard they they shut that place down. They did. They did. They yeah. they they used the. Uh, the pretense that it was harming the fish population uh, because mm-hmm. of the runoff and everything, erosion down into the, the, the rivers. Yeah, I was just trying to think. Of the, of the, there was another park, Harlan. Harlan's a good one. I, I remember racing there, too, as well as doing some rock crawling. There's some Ultra Force stuff there. Yeah, I'll be in Harlan here in the uh, middle of March, less than just yeah, a couple of weeks you, away. Yeah, that place is – I like Harlan. Um that's really a steep mountain, though. Uh, lots of uh, really, really steep, steep, muddy trails. Well, it'll be my first time there, so we'll. Uh, oh, well, you, we'll, you'll love it. <laughs> I I hate mud. <laughs> well, do you remember what's that event you had us out to in Tennessee? It started with an S. I think you only went there once, many, many years ago. Sequatchie. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, that that was a just a real shit show. Um, Brand new. So, remember. Brand new location. Yeah. All we just cut all the trees. That was all exposed soils for the first time, and it rained like nine inches on Friday night. <laughs> mm-hmm. It yeah, was, it was a, just a real slip and slide. Yeah, we were we were winching cars. Cars were having to winch to get to the start gates. Yeah, I remember that. I was uh, in a in the moon buggy winching myself up the access trail for the first. Uh, <laughs> course it was great i had a great time <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm sure you did like everybody else <laughs> are you ever going to go back to the sequachi no probably not <laughs> that, good uh, <laughs> yeah yeah that one was pretty uh costly oh uh, man it was terrible and then we didn't have very many spectators show up because it was so muddy it was that's right it was not it was a mess yeah it was it was uh it was something so the reason i point that out is Harlan is kind of kind of reminds me of of that steep, muddy, slippery terrain like that. Even though they'll have developed trails, if there's any moisture over there, that that place can be super duper challenging. Right. 
Well, I guess I'll find that out. Hopefully it's dry. Right. Yeah, it's fun, though. You'll like it. So let's talk about your buggy building. And which, well, yeah. let's, what are you doing now? Are you working? Are you just doing Axis Fab or are you, uh, do you have a, another job that you do? No, I'm, uh, I'm definitely doing Axis Fab and I'm, I'm in a rebuilding phase for the past, I don't know, three, four years. Um, uh, I guess the, I originally started by doing what I love, which was building and, uh, modifying and fabrication work and that naturally went into the need for uh retail um you know to build these cars and uh you need to have accounts with advanced adapters fox you know you, know, you name it worn or places to get winches from i should say and so it kind of started accruing all these places and some most with buy-ins to get the you know good prices and that naturally led me to you know retail sales and so started doing retail sales, had several employees over the years. Uh, I figured out retail sales, and it's hard to make a living in retail sales. The margins get tight. Um, there's always somebody selling it cheaper. Uh, and I, I stopped putting the emphasis on building these cars because I was trying to make this retail and uh, thing work and website work. And so, I don't know, I think from 2013, 14, uh, was when I really ramped that up to about 17 and realizing there was just, it just didn't work for me. It wasn't something I was passionate about. So I was wearing myself thin as a business owner would, you know, we were modifying people's Jeeps and off-road cars and, you know, stayed busy in the shop with, with uh, that sort of project. And you probably remember, I actually went cold on the competition scene for a long time, just trying to keep things focused when I went 100% into my previous career into this this other one uh, where I'm doing this full time so there was um there was a time where I realized I probably put too much investment into the low returns or low margins um, of retail sales and I know there's some companies that do really well at it but they probably have a much better recipe than I did so that was a little destructive you know investing so much into that time frame uh, so it kind of took me back a little bit to why am I doing it? And so I've gotten rid of all that, went out, got out of the commercial space that we were leasing, um, moved everything back to my own personal property. Um, there's some other personal things going on behind the scenes that made that more difficult than it needed to be. Um, so, you know, I'm just kind of in a rebuilding phase and focusing on what I want to do for the past three years. Um, and what I want to do is, you know, get back to uh, focusing on how to build these cars, these unlimited cars and, and the like to go further and, you know, grow the, grow my knowledge and, you know, push the limits of what these cars can do. And that's what I've been working on. And, and, and while trying to develop my new property that I'm at, it's about a 5,000 square foot, um, well, some people call it a barn dominium, but I live where I work now. So that's fun. A little bit of sarcasm in there, but it's fun. Do you do you find that uh, it allows you to have more time to work, or is it at times where you just go, "Man, I just don't want to go out to the shop." Well, you know, that definitely it's been a transition for quite a while. You know, being a single dad um, for a few quite a few years now, um, 
and um, my daughter needing a lot of time. It, you know, it's hard to find a balance between you know, trying to get a business refocused in, in the right direction. And I, I think the people that build and break barriers in this off-road world, you know, it's a lot like an artist. They, they really need a lot of time, private time, and to get immersed into what they're doing and, you know, try different things and experience different, you know, for the experience to know how to apply it to these cars and this, the terrain that we, we work in. And so, you know, it, it was just kind of tough. So I'm, I'm getting some balance these days where, um, you know, on a low limited budget, being able to get the resources and, and I should say equipment up and running and everything back. Like I used to have it, <clears throat> it's coming around. It's, taking a lot longer than I wanted it to. And in the meantime, I've had some really cool customers that I've that seemingly were patient at times and I hope they still are, but still doing some pretty cool projects here and there. Um while um having things uh move in a healthy good direction as far as stability. And I think the next year to two years is gonna be well actually let me refresh let me the past two years and the next three years I think is gonna be going to be just spectacular. Excellent. Excellent. And, uh, your daughter seems to be, be doing well. I mean, I, I follow all of, I follow all of the competitors, the guys that have run in our series, as long as, you know, that's, that's the greatest thing about social media. Um, if you don't get caught up in all the politics and the religion and all the, all the, the noise, but, uh, you get a chance to watch you know, people that you, you know, and like, and love do their thing and grow and, and be able to, uh, survive. And, uh, I've been paying attention, even though, you know, we don't talk much on the phone. We only saw each other at comps and stuff. You know, I, I keep an eye on you and Shortridge and guys like that. And it's, uh, it's always, it always makes me smile when I see you do, do things with the family and you're, you know, you're working on the, the building and having the help and, you know, spending time with, uh, with your daughter. That's, that's, uh, yeah, that's Olivia, important. Olivia definitely, um, yeah, taught me, uh, I've learned a lot. You know, she's my, I have one daughter, she's 16 and, um, yeah, she's, she's pretty busy in horses and she's picked her career, uh, for the future, um, against others, you know, saying that it won't work for her, but she's into horses, you, as you know, and, um, She's really trying to grow in that direction. Uh, she just got her driver's license, and she's driving herself to school for the past three or four weeks now. Uh, three weeks, I think. That's pretty scary when you put them behind the wheel. Yes. And send them on the way. But um, she has to drive 40 minutes to school, um, 40 minutes home. And uh, I'm going to tell you what, that was a long 40 minutes, but don't tell her I said so. I'm pretty nervous about it sometimes. But she's doing pretty good. Start she's watching good that clock. Oh man, I'm gonna tell you what—it it becomes uh, menacing how much that clock mocks you. <laughs> so, do you have her uh, when she leaves in the morning? You you know when she's leaving, and then do you have her? You know, like text me when you get to school. That's right. Yeah, yeah I get her to uh, some mornings, uh, rarely, but some mornings I can't be here when she takes off. Um, so she feeds the horse and the animals and stuff, and then she takes off and. Yeah, it's almost this instinctual thing, like, all right, I don't know, about this much time, she should be on the road. And then she's really good at it, though. She hits it right on point. She texts me right away and lets me know. But if you 
if you know, you know, and these kids, uh, you can't let them know how, uh, how much worrying you do, <laughs> but we do. You're not going to, you better not let her hear this then. <laughs> yeah, probably not. She knows better. She's, she's pretty sharp. Yeah. So then, uh, the plans are to get the, keep the access fab going and getting, uh, are you, I know that you have a chassis that you, uh, the single seat chassis, the rear steer that like that you and David book were driving. Um, is that, is that your focus or are you doing? Yeah, some other... I think, I think, um, I definitely want to see that through fruition. It's pretty funny, you know, back in what, 13, 14, Jeffy Haynes and I were talking about how, you know, the unlimited class is, is dead, you know, pro mods where it's at. And, uh, he's, you know, we're talking on the phone occasionally, like, you know, he's telling me you should build a pro mod. You shouldn't build an unlimited car. And, you know, I was pretty busy running the business. Um, so I, I was working on my own car in the evenings and on weekends, you know, building new memory. I think you laid it or dubbed it the, the unicorn when it came out, but that Volkswagen air cooled drag axle. And right. as soon as I, uh, brought that one out and you, you did away with the rear steer points, which uh, was great. I remember that <laughs> Our, conversation. Oh yeah. I remember that conversation too. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't come to that conversation, uh, uh, with an open mind for the first five minutes. And <laughs> as usual, you did a great job of, uh, reminding me of my manners and uh, it went pretty, pretty good from there. I think I, you even proved me wrong. And, uh, complimented me at the same time and lo and behold i'm pretty sure we went to beating everybody even with the no rear steer point yep. it was great so anyway that car was something i started originally to just try to be uh, you know drive more interest and help grow the sport on the east coast and specifically in the unlimited you know because that's, that's what i like i i started in the unlimited class competing I, and i just love it um so um, there's been some bumps in the road over the years, but we've got, uh, version, another version of that car coming. Um, it's been a little slower than we like, but it's another version coming. Uh, I got a couple other cars coming. Um, that Volkswagen car, you know, I don't know if you remember the, the engine gave us some trouble and towards the end there it was becoming unreliable. Um, but I still have a, a Volkswagen, Volkswagen engine to put back together. And I think my next car that I built for myself will have a uh, version 2.0 air cooled Volkswagen, uh, rear steer 50 degrees front and rear. I'm not sure about the, uh, if I'm going to put the, uh, what we call the maximals. I think we're going to stick with the traditional axles for a bit longer. No high heels. But I was just thinking, you know, that's what it was. I think we were joking around about high heels once upon a time. Yeah. Everybody on the longer. West coast is wearing high heels. Mm-hmm. I might, I might try a pair on myself one day. Um, but right now, uh, uh, I think, uh, I think we're going to stick with what I've got sitting here, um, on the current car. And then when, when I build a new one, I might, uh, might consider doing that. I, I think they got a advantage in certain areas and disadvantage in others, but, uh, lots and lots of things, man, about having adversity in cars and different aspects i think you put the right driver behind any car and they're successful right correct um so i don't i don't know that one one design over the other is going to win the day i think you got excellent drivers and strategists uh that uh know how to be on top there's a lot of great ones out there absolutely the 
the top drivers, once they've learned, you know, how to play chess against me, because um, right. I think I, I look at the competitions as a as a chess match. You with, got it. With yeah. the board being the terrain, and then me setting the courses, and you guys driving them, and it's. I never look at it as, you know, I want to stop you guys. I want to challenge, challenge you guys where you look at it and say, what was he thinking? We'll never be able to drive that. And then you guys figure well, it out. It's funny you mentioned that. I think Dave Brook and I will have, have probably talked the most out of all of my friends. Um, and I told him once upon a time, you know, when he was first, you know, getting his feet wet into the competition scene. I said, you know, you're really not competing against these other guys. You really just need to master what's going on in, in the head, head of Rich Klein there and um, figure out what what lines are doable. He knows his terrains, and he knows, you know, to some extent to what these cars can do and can't do. And so we got dummy dummy lines, and you got uh, <laughs> totally doable lines. You just got to figure out how to do it and use the rule book as the uh, resource to stay within the uh, parameters of what he's thinking. And uh, it's funny to hear you say the same thing and what I, what I said to him, basically. Yep. It's, that's how I, I look at it. And that's, uh, you know, I, I always have, you know, I don't, somebody goes, well, do you ever drive the courses? Well, no, I, but after doing this for 20 plus years of setting courses and, and watching the vehicles drive competition courses, I mean, back from when Arca started, you know, it's uh, it, it's it's a science as well building the car as it is setting proper courses. Um, That's exactly right. So you look at the perspective of a driver; he's going to know how to get in the car and understand exactly and translate what it is you're what you're seeing. Like your perspective is, you wouldn't know how to get in the seat and do the same thing in this chess game, as it were. Not not your Jeep or anything like that, but right. this chess game you play. You get into the um, uh, geometry that's involved, right, and the uh, the other things. And from your perspective, you're masterful by watching these cars go through and succeed or not succeed. So, so you would have a better advantage. That's my take over the years. You you can see what's going on better than most from the outside, almost you know, as if you were to take a driver and put them in on their feet. They'll most likely say, "Oh, I think that's doable." You put them behind the wheel, and they're just—they're going to make it happen, right? Correct. So, I think it's just a matter of perspective, and your perspective is just as you described. You know, you know how to do it from the from on your feet and build these cars from your imagination based on experience, right? Right. So I'd be a really, much uh, better spotter than a driver. That's another way to put it, too. You know what? I tried spotting over the past few years. You might remember. Yep. And um, at first, I felt—I uh, don't know—I felt like, uh, "Man, what the hell am I doing?" I don't know what to do. Try turning left or something. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, I figured it out. I, I like doing it. As a matter of fact, I might try to do more of it in the future. I don't know. I think I, if you know the vehicle and you know the tools and how to how to get the car to do certain things using those tools, and even though that I'm not a driver, I watch everybody use their tools. So right. I know, you know, when when somebody is, you know, turning uphill with the rear steer and I look at it and go, Oh, that's the wrong direction, you know? And then they get yeah. all cattywampus in there and can't, can't move. Whether yeah, I can funny. do it from the inside, but I can do it from the outside. Yeah. It's funny. That's exactly what I'm saying. You, you, sometimes as a driver, you get caught up on my wheels are turning that way. 
but I really want the car to go that way. And trying to explain that from the outside as a driver to another driver, and you're like, uh, I don't know what to say. <laughs> you got to use your, your feels at this point. Yep, you need your tires that way, but the car needs to go that way. And by turning this way, it's going to get it to happen, I think. At least that's what I think from the driver's seat. But, you know, when it comes down to communication, having a good connection, I think uh, one of my struggles in, was having uh, the ability to connect with spotters and, and l- listening to what they see and work with versus knowing what the car needs to get what they want. Uh, right. And I think, man, I, I'm going to tell you what, spotters are the most undervalued, overlooked um, resource that's required to do what we've been doing on the previous formats, right? Yep. So these guys are, uh, you take like Mike Fox. Um, you know, Mike Fox started out rock crawling with us in the beginning. He he, he was, uh, as you know, a marathon runner and yeah. just otherwise a guy that just makes stuff happen. And as it turns out, over the years, he turned into one of what I think is the premier spotters out there. Um, he, he, you know, he just a couple of years ago he was spotting for like four or five cars at the same time. Oh, I remember. And yep. yeah, I think he put two or three on the podium uh, between the different classes. I, I don't quote me on that. I know, I know. Out here on the east, we were running some events, and man, I will tell you what, um, working with that guy was uh, is 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 just phenomenal watching the way uh, he works with you through the course and understands the respect that the car needs through the driver's perspective and gelling well with what he sees to stay on your strategy, right? Because at the end of the day, if you're doing something that's against your strategy, just trying to make the car get from point A to point B, that just doesn't work. So, yeah, hands down. You have to have flow, you know, because, like, when I set the courses, I don't – I, I mean, I look at, first of all, I walk through everything and I look at the terrain and I say, okay, this is, this area here is really cool. This area here is really cool. And I, I kind of group up those, those areas. And then I have to figure out how to get people to those areas and what order right. to do it in. And right. so that it becomes challenging, but also so that, you know, sometimes it's really easy to get from gate one to gate two, but sometimes... Yeah what I really prefer to do is to put the set of cones like the goalpost and it's all about getting to those goalposts, not necessarily getting <laughs> through the goalpost. Exactly. I, I know, I know that strategy well. <laughs> so people look at those cones, you know, they're always looking at the cones. How am I going to get through the cones? And they look at the cones and oh, this will be easy. And then, so they walk off to the next set and they didn't realize that, you know, what I did to them to get to those cones is where they needed to study. Right. And I'll watch people get through that like that first gate, and they're yep. they're thinking, "Oh, I'm just going to drive over to get this easy set of cones," and then they're all boogered up there, and they're in there for six or seven minutes trying to to get situated so where they can get through those easy cones. It's yeah. uh, it's quite enjoyable sometimes. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely something uh, something I enjoy uh, a lot. So you're. Uh, you're you're hopefully going to come out pretty soon and start crawling with us again i hope um i know that yeah. uh there's there's a comp scene on the east coast that hans is doing and uh i can i congratulate him on on being able to do that and keep it going 
Um, mm-hmm. We see that a lot where people try to do it, and you know, after a, an event or a season, you know, it, it kind of goes by the wayside. Um, I'm hoping that he can continue that east and and build it. I know that uh, it's really difficult for one promoter to get to everywhere. And uh, well, I think you're right. Um, I think Hans has got a a strategy that he's working on. Uh, and I think this particular year coming up will be instrumental, whether his strategy is um, viable or not. Um, I think he's a great guy, very talented, very, very smart. Very. Um, yeah. And I don't know if I know many people as, a, as enthusiastic and passionate about off-roading uh, that slides into the role, like, you know, trying to, put these events on. So I, I, I applaud him for it. Um, I think he's got a new format that he's working on for this year. Um, based on, you know, his experiences from the past few years, at least I've heard, I haven't talked to him in a while now, but uh, some of the stuff I've heard um, is it should be pretty exciting to see some of the changes. You know, one of the things I got to say is it was pretty disappointing seeing that we rock isn't, you know, as prevalent in the, out here on the true East or far east i should say but um i think uh maybe as the sport grows you i got a question for you you think you'll bring it back further or what i think eventually that it will come that direction um you know we've uh we've brought jake good in as a a partner and eventually he'll be taking it over completely and that's going to be his decision we we quit going that far east because of the car counts Exactly. That's we've had that conversation for years now. Yeah, and it just—I just couldn't make it work. And if I can't make it work, I can't. uh, If I can't afford to make it work, I can't. I can't do it. You know, I can't make everything else suffer to to push through when we just weren't getting the participation. And that's exactly right. That's any business. Yeah, got those same constraints. Yeah, and and I hate that because I love you guys on the East Coast, and I love a lot of the locations that we've, that we've used, it's just, you know, I can't, I couldn't make it work financially to, to drive out there and do it all. And then, uh, you know, have to have that long drive back and not have enough cars show up to, to make it viable. So right. I'm hoping that exactly. Hans can build the, the, build it out there. And then maybe, you know, so at some point that Hans and Jake can work it out where they're working, you know, in coordination. And mm-hmm. so that, uh, Guys can either, you know, run one series or the other and then come to a national championship. You know, that's what I was hoping for at some point. And, uh, you know, scheduling, you know, has to work to make to make that work. And, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, the, all, something like that can all work in the future. I mean, kind of like how Supercrawl was to begin with. You know, Stump was able to get all the promoters to say, okay, you know, we'll back off of this going this late as long as super that's going to be super crawl's date and we'll have all of our stuff done so that everybody can go to one big event at the end of the year. And, yeah. uh, you know, that, that worked while, at, especially at the very beginning, at the end, once everybody was, you know, under one banner, so to say, except for maybe us, um, you know, we still tried to stay off the date and let them do that. But it, you know, it, it, uh, it has to work that way to make something like that work. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Supercrawl. I remember 
heading out to uh, Phoenix, Arizona for my first Supercar event in, was that, 06 maybe? Um, when I did that one. Um, what was it? Ranch Pratt owned that, didn't he? Yeah, uh, um, it started off with, with Craig Stump, and um, then from Craig Stump it went to the Pades, and then Ranch Pratt came over, Craig Stump stepped aside, and then Ranch stopped Arca and was running um, U-Rock, and U-Rock was the, uh, was the super crawl competition yeah. at the end of the year. Yeah. yeah, I remember that one in Phoenix was, was pretty fun. It was. And it was then, a heck uh, of a party at uh, Campbell's one of those nights. Did you make it over <laughs> there? Was it? Oh, man, I'm going to tell you what. That was a blast. Yeah. <laughs> that was a that hell of a party. A <laughs> yeah, that was a good time. <laughs> so I remember uh, the Monster Energy drinks by the pallets. Yes, and yeah. then the girls, and, the girls behind the bar. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was that too, sure. <laughs> and then there there ended up a I don't know if you were there that late or not but there ended up being a uh, a confrontation some guys uh were getting out of hand and and uh actually it was uh the Browns had to and then uh, Nick Campbell stepped in and and straightened out the attitudes it was pretty funny it was pretty crazy Yeah I don't remember I remember there being some kind of uh extracurricular activities going on, on over uh, in one area, but I think I was preoccupied with what I was working on. And, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a good, it was a good night. I don't remember that specifically. I do remember some kind of commotion. Yeah, there was a commotion, but, but those Browns, they took, they, they were taking care of it. That's for sure. <laughs> I think that's, that's the night we made a transaction on uh, that Shannon, uh, one of Shannon's cars. We bought, um, well, Carl and I worked something out, but on the, what, what became his car, the Wild Nut Express. That's the night, uh, or the party that we uh, got that Campbell car. Oh, nice. Yeah, I remember that. So there was some good, real good that came out of that. Yeah, it was a lot, a lot. It was a tough weekend for me. Uh, back uh, back home, my daughter was uh, sick and in the emergency room for Mm, some kind of stomach virus or something that was a pretty big deal. And so that was pretty disappointing. And, you know, I was getting ready to just drop everything Saturday night and fly home. And Carl was, you know, Carl flew out to hang out with us and at the super call. And when he landed or and I, that morning, I said, man, my daughter's not feeling well. And she's sick and I might have to go home. Would you drive the car in the event? And he was considering it. And I'm glad he didn't, you know, and everybody talked to me about finishing that event, but, Anyway, so that night it was overwhelming to go back to the hotel and just sit there, right? And so we ended up doing some other things. And, um, well, we went to that with well, a party was Saturday night too, right? Yep. Um, so that distracted me, but she ended up being okay, but um, it's still nerve-wracking, right? So he was willing to drop everything and forego his plane ticket and drive my rig home with Mark Smith. And uh, I'll tell you what, he's a really good friend. And then he also with everybody else's and you know she's in good hands she'll be all right and everything's looking good and you should just stay in focus but and then the next morning well my uncle one of my uncles died oh wow that was a real yeah that was a real rough weekend and so mark and i they you know they got me to finish the weekend out and i think we slipped from like fourth place to we finished that weekend out in sixth place or maybe it was third place and we finished it out in sixth my head just wasn't in it on on sunday but 
I remember the most memorable drive from out west to home was from that event. We literally drained every bit of weight we could off the trailer, and I was giving stuff away to make it as light as possible, and I was going to try to set the record going home, uh, not knowingly. I'll say that after the fact. I was just wanting to get home as quick as I could uh, to make the funeral and see what's up with my, my daughter and make sure everything's okay. And, and um, when we left out of Phoenix that night, or that Sunday, right at, because we didn't make the shootout, I think. So it was, I forget what top place they were taking. We didn't make the shootout, or we were just dropped out. Of, maybe it was in sixth place. I don't remember what happened, but maybe they took the top four or something. Or Yeah, I forget I what their, how they did that. Yeah, we didn't make the shootout like your format did. So I'm pretty sure we finished in sixth place. And as soon as we were done and we left out of there and went the south, the southern route out of Phoenix, right? Where you go down by, uh, what is that? You go Tucson down and, and then through 10. Yep. Yeah, go by Juarez. And, man, that truck was running 80, I'm sorry, 90 to 95, all the way through that southern route through Texas. And Mark was driving while I was sleeping. And uh, he kept, you know, that truck had straight exhaust. over was that, a Duramax? So you couldn't let off the throttle without somebody being in a dead sleep recognizing the exhaust tone change, right? <laughs> and uh, so I kept hearing him trying to slow down. And one night, one point in the middle of the night, like two, three o'clock, and I look at him and I said, man, what do you keep slowing down for? He said, man, I can't do it no more. I can't do it no more. So it's like roulette every time we pass one of these, one of these uh, turnouts where cops would be, man. It's just, I can't do it. And I think somewhere in, uh, just in the beginning of Texas, I got behind the wheel and, and uh, never got back out of the seat other than for fuel. And that truck stayed uh, right under 95 miles an hour all the way home. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it's got, I'm, 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 I hate to say it, but um, it was uh, it was stressful and and uh, uh, a quick trip home, and I was very fortunate to make it just in time to jump in my my best clothes and go to the funeral and check on my daughter as well. And so that's what I really remember from that weekend. You know, the Super Bowl was great; it was a good experience, but overshadowed by what we leave at home. Right. So, Especially yeah, when you're going that, that distance. I mean, that's, that's a yeah, long ways. Yeah. I think we got home from Phoenix to home was uh, just over 30 hours, which I think it took us 36, 37 before. Or it was either just under, which um, at the time I didn't care about the stats. That came up later talking to somebody else. Well, how fast can you get from here to there? Well, I happen to know if you stop for nothing but fuel and uh, you drive 90 to 95 miles an hour the whole way, uh, <laughs> this is as good as it gets. Yep. I've made that trip. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah you know what it's like. My daughter ended up, um, um, that triggered um, an autoimmune um, deficiency, which is pretty, I learned a lot about it since then, but that sickness that she got, uh, that vicious stomach virus, they say you know, a lot of people have this DNA or this gene that can be awakened by certain traumatic events or sicknesses. And so she developed celiac disease from that point forward. For the rest of her life, she... You have to eat a very specific diet, you know, related to wheat-free and gluten-free. And uh, so, yeah, it's pretty pretty impactful weekend. Well, I'm glad it it turned out okay, and that you guys made it home it safely, did. and uh, you know, you're able to take care of business. So, well, you know, um, Alan, I want to say thank you so much for for coming on board and sharing your life. I mean, we talked about a lot. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I enjoy talking to you as usual. 
Yeah. I can keep on going if you wanted to, but we got work to do, I bet. Yeah, we we both do, I'm sure. So yeah. we'll uh we can catch up again. I'm sure we're gonna see each other and uh you know we'll uh we'll discuss some more. And uh thank you so much for coming on board and and sharing uh your stories with us and and what's happening in your life. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. All right. Well you take care. Yeah, bye. Okay, bye bye. If you enjoy these podcasts, please give us a rating. Share some feedback with us via Facebook or Instagram and share our link among your friends who might be like-minded. Well, that brings this episode to an end. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you next week with Conversations with Big Rich. Thank you very much.